0: Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Attorney Jones is the founder and CEO of Sarah Jones Law. In Lake Wales, Florida. Sarah Jones Law serves individuals and families who require help with criminal defense, personal injury, and or family law matters. Sarah leads a team of three attorneys and five staff members who are dedicated to providing the highest level of service to the citizens of Polk County. In addition to creating one of the fastest growing law firms in her community, Sarah is the president of the Lincoln Community Development Corporation the secretary for the Green and Gold Foundation, and the vice chair of the Circle of Friends Board of Directors. She sits on the City of Lake Wales Code Enforcement Board and has been instrumental in the creation, adoption, and implementation of the city's Lake Wales Connected Redevelopment Plan. So welcome, Sarah. I'm so happy to have you here today on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast.
1: Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, so are you having a great morning this morning so far?
1: I am. Um, I halfway won and halfway have to wait to win a hearing this morning. So I'm sort of on a in <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> so you're waiting for that news. Okay, great.
1: So why don't you tell us, so you and I have known each other for
0: a while. Uh, we became friends through Facebook and uh, many years ago, but I would love it if you would share a little bit about who you are and uh, what your firm does. So people kind of, people who don't know you have a, an idea about that.
1: All right. So I am an attorney from Polk County, Florida. For people who don't know, that's right. Smack dab in central Florida. Um, And we do family law, personal injury and criminal defense. And our firm's mission is to advocate for our clients by working to achieve lasting solutions to their problems, improving their lived experiences and focusing on their overall well-being. So um, as you know, you kind of helped me develop my mission and and be able to articulate it in that way. Um, but the, the short of it, I guess, is I've always really enjoyed helping people. I come from a long line of people who have traditionally helped people, um, a bunch of teachers and whatnot in my family. Um, And I sort of picked up on that that thread and I wanted to help people in a way that I felt was really significant. Um, And the law touches in every part of of people's lives, whether they realize, realize it or not. Um, and I sort of fell into my practice areas as an extension of that desire to help people um, because the people who come to me are either very emotionally hurt by their issues with criminal defense or family law, or they're physically injured with their personal injury issues. Um, and it brings me a certain amount of pleasure to be able to help people through difficult circumstances and get back on track to having the life that they want. That That's wonderful. And,
0: and uh you, you're doing some great work in Polk County. I want to talk about your journey to to the law, to becoming an attorney. I know you are seventh generation Floridian uh, from Polk County. So tell me about, you know, what was life like for young
1: Sarah when when you, when did you decide you wanted to be an attorney? All right, let me correct it because I don't want to exaggerate. I know for a fact I am fifth generation from Lake Wales. Um, I'm having a little difficulty tracing beyond that. Um, but nonetheless, my um, family history really extends quite deeply into this community. Um, and so I guess the, the little Sarah who was raised here um, came to love this place and came to value the people who lived here. Um, what I came to realize as I got older is the number of people who really poured into me to make sure that I could become a success. Um, and that has been a great benefit to me. Um, and to my dismay, I see how many people have not had that same benefit. Um, and I really wanted to come back to where I was from to make a difference here for people and make the lived experiences of the people in the place where I was raised and fed. Um, one that was positive or more positive. So you, when did you, at what point did you know
0: you wanted to be an attorney? Was that something that you'd always had a dream about or did you decide that later on
1: in life? No. Um, again, much to my dismay, <laughs> um, <laughs> I I had, I've always been a person who knew what I want and I kind of joke and say the irony of that is I thought that I wanted, I thought I knew what I wanted and then I sort of got there or got close to it and realized that that was in fact not what I wanted. So I spent my entire childhood, um, tracing back to at the very least kindergarten, saying that I was going to be a doctor, um, and I was going to be a pediatrician, and I wanted to um. help people. Not really realizing that had stemmed from the fact that I was ill as a child. Um, I didn't. My parents did not realize that I was a celiac because that was not a thing when I was a child, at least not a popular thing. Um, and so up until the time I was in college, I was very sick because I was eating things that I was allergic to. Um, and so doctors had helped me. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go help people by being a doctor. Um, and so when I was in college, I had the opportunity to shadow a doctor and have an internship with his office and go and do all the things, that obviously not do, but be, <laughs> be a witness to all the things that he was doing. Um, and... You know, I had had the experience of like, okay, this is sort of whatever when we were in the office every day. But I also understood I didn't know the things that he knew. And so, of course, I wasn't going to connect on the same level. But I think the day it really hit me was when we did hospital rounds and we went and we went from room to room to room. um, And he talked to people and um, the look on their faces as as. We left each room was like this mouth still open, waiting to ask another question that they're they're not going to get an answer to. Um, and like I found myself walking out of each room, looking back at the person, like they there's something still missing. That like there there was something that was still unresolved, and I didn't feel like it was the sort of holistic problem solving that I really wanted to engage in. And that set me off on the journey to figure out what was that realistic, that that holistic um, problem solving that I wanted to engage in. Around that same time, um, a lot of protests were were going on following the murder of Martin Lee Anderson. Um, That was my first year in college and um, maybe earlier that Early in my college experience or late in my high school experience, um, Trayvon Martin, as we all know, was was killed on tape by boot camp guards, which ultimately led to the elimination of boot camps in Florida, but not to the conviction um, or or um, any real accountability for the people who had had murdered him. Um, And I watched, unfortunately, over and over and over this video of six adults standing over a 14 year old boy as the life slipped from his body. And I, I couldn't imagine how that was justice. I couldn't imagine how the the subsequent acquittals were justice or even a lot of the rhetoric surrounding it. It was all just very, very disturbing to me. Um, and around that time, um, Attorney Bancroft was leading some of those protests in Tallahassee and I came to know him, later came to intern at his law firm. Um, during that time was when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, and so, of course, that affected me very deeply. um at one point, we were all called into a conference room and said, said you know it it was said, if the phone rings, we all have to answer. the phone won't stop ringing. you know, and fielding some of those calls and hearing how deeply it hurt people who had never met Trayvon Martin and feeling and knowing that I wasn't the only one that was deeply hurt by this that was going on, and that it was a symptom of something that has been peripheral and underlying in our society for a very long time and a very systemic issue. And while I wasn't jaded enough to think that I alone could solve the systemic issue, I did understand that there were people who were able to impact other people's experience of the system. Um, And that very much um, lit a fire in me that has never been extinguished. Wow, wow, What, what a powerful
0: what a powerful story of kind of being introduced to this world of social justice and, and realizing that you could have the tools to at least affect some people's lives in a more positive way. Right. What, so what made you decide to start your own firm?
1: Oh, okay. Um, so I, I, all of these are long stories, but here goes. So That's okay. I, was, I want to hear the long stories. I love, I love your stories. <laughs> so I was working straight out of law school for a friend of mine. He had um, also interned at Parks and Crump. We had worked together. He was an associate and I was an intern at a personal injury firm. And he later went to start his own practice while I was still in law school. Um, around the time that I was graduating, he was ready to hire his first associate and that was me. Um, and about, I would say nine months into it, I got the news that my dad was terminally ill. Um, and I am a daddy's girl. Um, even though he's not here, I am actively still a daddy's girl. And, um, you know, that just led me sort of to throw out the playbook a little bit. Um, because I fully had intended on working for someone else for the duration of my career and, and, advocating for people under someone else's name and I, I was okay with that at that time. Um, but I ended up moving back to Polk County, I was in Orlando at the time, I ended up moving back to Polk County to take care of my dad and sort of deciding to almost put my career on the back burner. Um, I understood that that would not be a terribly long time and I was willing to go go through that with him. Um, the community did not really allow me to do that. Um, I guess, and I guess I I had a part in it. I could have said no, but almost as soon as I came back, I had about six clients that I took with me from the whole firm. That you know, my intention was to finish off their case and sort of stop practicing until I was you know, till my dad's situation was over. Um, and I came back, and people were like, "We need your help. This situation has happened." and um, I had had experience with criminal defense work because I had done my certified legal internship in law school at the, um, Orange County State Attorney's Office. And so I had prosecuted cases. I had, you know, worked my own caseload and I knew how to do criminal prosecution. And so as a result, I was pretty sure I knew how to do criminal defense work and people came to me with situations that I felt compelled to help with. And so at first it was just, I'm going to file my articles of incorporation and open the operating and a trust account and all of these things to take care of these individual issues. And I did not realize at the time when I was starting. Um, honestly, that was probably for the better because my mindset was just not there yet. Um, right. But I, I did these things to feel legitimate, you know. Giving the firm a name, creating a logo, you know, things that I sort of understood from working in high quality firms that you needed to be legitimate. And I sort of hung my shingle with the intention of okay, I'm just going to do these few things while I'm taking care of my dad. Well, um, I guess it was probably about eight months and my dad passed. And I no longer had the sort of excuse of saying, oh, well, I'll just wait, you know? And not to say my dad was an excuse. I very much wanted to be there for him, but also um, knowing me in the way that I sort of can avoid things when I want to. um, It also was a way for me to not realize myself in service of someone else, um, which is something I'm working on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But when my dad passed, it occurred to me that um, if I'm to be honest with myself, my dad was never fully satisfied with his life because he did not go after everything that he wanted. And a lot of it was out of fear. Um, And I actually found out getting off a cruise ship from my honeymoon that my dad passed. um, And on that three-hour ride back home, I'm going to clear up my voice in a second here. (laughs) Um, On my three-hour ride back home, As I contemplated what my dad's life meant, I promised myself I wouldn't let fear hold me back. And so I had to determine what it was that I really wanted. Um, And I found that when I looked around, I didn't really wanna leave Polk County. And when I looked around, I just didn't see anybody doing the type of justice work that I knew that I wanted for my life. Um, And so I was led to sort of create it for myself.
0: Right. Right. Thank you for sharing that story. I I know that that's really tender point for you. Um, And it's something you and I, you've shared with me before, and I appreciate you sharing it Um, because I know how influential both of your parents were in your life and in your, in the decisions that you made. Um, When you decided to get into doing well, this, uh, you're very you're very active as an activist in your community as well as you know growing this successful law firm. Was that something that you felt like you were sort of did you realize you were doing that right from the start? I mean, was it a, was it something you said I'm going to be you know a champion for the rights of other people or was it something that sort of you were doing um,
1: but maybe didn't realize the full impact of what you were doing? So one of those things is true. And then there's also a factor that I don't even know that you fully know about and I'll explain. So there was a point where I was running a campaign. I was a campaign manager for someone who was uh, running for public defender. She's a local attorney named Tanya Stewart. And in that campaign, um, we came to learn a lot of things and I had to ask a lot of questions. And I realized that me asking the very same questions that other people asked held a lot more weight because of these degrees behind me. Um, and so I thought it very interesting that I could walk in any room that I wanted to walk in and I could say almost anything that I wanted or needed to say, and it would hold some weight because I'm an attorney. And I used to very much shy away from that. I would introduce myself to people and they would be talking to me for 30 or 45 minutes and then say, oh, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm an attorney. And they would have this astonished look on their face because I guess they thought that I was supposed to tell them that up front. And I still do that in a lot of personal conversations, but I will find now, I will pick up the phone and say, good morning, my name is Sarah Jones, I'm an attorney. In an effort to advocate for someone else because I understand my role as a gatekeeper Um, and that there are many people who don't have the same level of education, privilege, experience that I have, um, whose rights will not be advocated for, will not be upheld if no one speaks for them. And there is a process, a long incremental process of changing that, but there is a lived experience that people are having today that is a detriment to them. So that realization was a huge part of it. The other part is, um, I think some people in power kind of messed up and misjudged me, um, so (laughs) underestimated you. (laughs) I don't think it was underestimated. I think that they saw that I was smart. They saw that I care and I'm passionate and they did not realize that my passion does not only extend to people who already have influence and power. Um, and so. I was sort of voluntold into a leadership position um, about three years ago where I was called into a room of community leaders. There's probably about 15 of us in the conference room. And they said, hey, we're doing this development plan of downtown. And, you know, we have already heard that you guys know this and are wondering what's going to happen in the Northwest section, which is the um, traditionally black neighborhood in Lake Wales. Um, So we want to make sure that that the whole city is included and we want to make sure that we get um, community leaders to be a part of the redevelopment and make sure that, you know, what you guys want is is considered. Um, and so in those meetings, at one point it was asked, well, amongst you, who is the leader? Which is an interesting question, among, you know, anyway, because there it wasn't a formalized group at that point. Right. Um, but of the people in the room, I was the only one who did not say my name. Um, and so as the youngest person in the room, I'm sort of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like <laughs> there are people in this room who have been advocating for this community community for 30 and 40 years what makes me the leader? Um, and I don't know that that question was ever answered, but um, the question was posed, are you saying no? And and of course, the answer was not no. Uh, you know, I, I was perfectly willing to lead the effort, um, but I don't think that it was fully contemplated what that meant for me, because what that meant for me was going to the heart of the community and saying, in addition to what do you need, what ails you, what stops you from achieving those things? And so the answers to those questions have informed a lot of my leadership in my positions, which has been on various ends of the spectrum of popularity, depending on what I'm talking about. Right, right. So let's give,
0: can you give people uh uh, a visualization of what the community is like in Polk County, in Lake Wales, Florida. Can, and it, it give us a setting for so we understand the work that you're doing and why it's so needed and why it's so important.
1: Um, this area is... I, maybe it's my lived experience, but I like to think of this area as, as the epitome of Florida and the epitome of the United States, in that there are some amazing qualities. It is absolutely beautiful here. Our weather is amazing. Um, we have a Level of community and southern, sort of southern charm. Um, we really value our um, natural resources. Um, we, we put a lot of effort into um, our gardens and trees and water and, you know, all of those things. There is a lot of economic depression here and there's a lot of wealth here, um, or at least some wealth here. Um, and there is a group of people who consider themselves middle class but if you look at the actual economics of it and what you know economists consider middle class that is not necessarily the case um there's also a lot of people here who are very much disenfranchised um there is a disproportionate number of felons here Um, our arrest rates are very high our incarceration rates are very high um there is um there's just The diversity of people's lived experiences is very high. And what I have found is that some lived lived experiences are accounted for when it comes to public resources and and the way that our collective resources that we all have rights to as citizens, um, the way that they're allocated and the way that the policy is made um, and executed is oftentimes unfair. There is it is very blatant that they don't believe uh, believe certain people's accounts of their lived experiences, um, and that comes to bear on their their rights um, and also directly on their lives and their ability to improve their lives. Um, and therefore, it comes to bear on all of our lives because we know that when people's resources are strained, um, they engage in engage in behavior that they wouldn't otherwise engage in, um, and so all of it is sort of this big amalgam of stuff that needs to be untangled and I sort of fancy puzzles. Um, And so it's something that I wanted to tackle in an individual way as an attorney, but also in a collective way that sheds light on what it is that our community needs um, and to lead the effort to sort of Go about the process of incrementally changing the needs the things that need to be changed, but also holding. The public officials accountable and saying, "Okay, there are certain things that are intra-community and things that we need to work on because leadership is not your responsibility and mentoring is not your responsibility and those sorts of things." But there are certain things like our public roadways and the the you know the community redevelopment funds and all of the things that are, in fact, the the, the government and the public responsibility and making sure that the people who are charged with distributing those things and making those decisions understand that um, they should be equally distributed um, and it it should be taken into account who has traditionally received those resources and who has traditionally been left out um, and look at what will benefit everyone, not just people who are comfortable coming within the walls of City Hall or, or the County Commission Building or whatever the case may be, um, but everyone who who should be counted as citizens in our community. Right, right.
0: So, so would you characterize? Would you say there's a lot of there's a lot of tension among the pop, different populations in the community? So, some racial tension, some tension uh, dividing along kind of the haves and the have nots or people who think they're haves and the have nots (laughs) um, uh, that creates kind of this, I mean, it's a, it's a real uh, reflection of what's going on across the country in a lot of our small towns, especially in the Southeastern United States. Um, What kinds of, what have you seen sort of, shift and change over the last few years or, or have you with regard to the social justice efforts and how you know like how did the black lives matter movement affect what was going on there um how did politics in general affect what's been going on there
1: so um I will say that race is such an interesting issue, and it's one that we do not understand in this country because we think that race is one thing, and when you study it academically, which I have done extensively, it is very much another, and you realize it's something that gets conflated with other things such as nationality and citizenship and color mm-hmm. um, and, and things that it's not. And what I have come to learn is that race is actually a distract- the distractor. What it does is it makes people um who would ordinarily not question themselves, question their very existence and, and the quality and, and worthiness of it. And it also creates a situation where people who are in fact not empowered believe that they are part of an empowered group. And so they continue to p- perpetuate a system that doesn't actually benefit them. Um, and what is happening is the laws in our, cha- our country have changed. Um, and that is in response to um, outcry, right? So if we go back historically, um, and I, I won't call myself a student of history, but I am a student of patterns and, and, and policy and, and how things came to be. Um, so I, I'm not gonna spout off dates and things like that. But if you if you look back to the beginning of this country, What happened is um, someone accidentally landed here um, and there was a law about discovery. Whatever European country discovered land, um, then that land then went to that country. Um, And that law absented the people who already inhabited the land. Um, And so people came here and then realized this land is very different and not developed according to what we believe is development. And so now we have to do all of this work. This work is very difficult and we need help, but we have no money. So in order to get this work done, we need free and cheap labor. Mm -hmm. So we bring over prisoners for free labor and servants, um, indentured Mm -hmm. servants for cheap labor. But then indentured servants then become free after a certain period of time after they fulfill their obligation and our our free labor is gone. So we have to come up with some system to maintain this free labor because it's very expensive to import, which is such a disgusting way of, of putting it, but more free labor. So oh. then we have to have some way of dividing people. We have all of these Black people, these people from somewhere else who are, are identifiable. Um, they're used to working in heat and sun, and and they've been able to endure conditions that other races of people have not been able to endure. So let's change the rules and say certain people can have their freedom at certain point and so, certain people cannot. And, part, and a lot of people don't understand, but if you go back and read, part of that was because those people who are in who are similarly situated were beginning to band together and want rights and want to be afforded opportunities. Um, and that was an easy way to divide people because you can open your eyes and see this person is different from me. And ah, as a result of this difference, I can be free. And mm. I don't really know you, I don't really care about you. So my freedom is far more important to me than your freedom. I need to be free. And so it becomes, again, an issue of resources. Um, And this thing was perpetuated over and over and over until it was ingrained so deeply in our society and in our law. And we got the Fugitive Slave Act and we got all of these, you know, Jim Crow later. And and no matter how much we strove to accomplish these ideals that our founding fathers set out, there was this messy situation that just simply did not comply and so what what has come over the years is there is a vast difference in our rhetoric of freedom and justice for all and our actual behavior and that cognitive dissonance is painful um it's extremely painful in in a way that it affects all of society and so what happens is that because the two cannot meet, you can't have these ideals that spot one thing and a reality that doesn't. So people have to take sides and their sides are going to depend on what affects them most deeply because that's human nature. Um, And so I think what's happened over time is the more free we get, the more we seek that to to accomplish that ideal, the more we sort of rip the bandaid off of this centuries long issue um, that was insustainable in the first place. And so we, we, it, it has to come to a head. And, and, and my hope is that it doesn't have to be a violent one and it it, it can be one. Um, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with like a relationship, interpersonal relationships. Sometimes it takes, well, of course you are. <laughs> um, sometimes it <laughs> takes, that sort of friction to get to the other side of it. Um, and so I have come to a place where I am not so uncomfortable creating that friction as long as it is purposeful. I don't intend to be a disruptor, but if I see that calling attention to something that makes other people uncomfortable is what is required to affect change, then so be it.
0: Yeah, that is that is very powerful, very powerful, but- the idea that 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 it is that things need to come to a head, that there needs to be something that is a catalyst. It, and every time there's big change in our society, there's something that's a big, there's a big catalyst to it. And uh, it's been very interesting um, over the last few years to watch uh, kind of this bringing these types of conversations to the forefront. Like, thing that was so has been so disruptive and so difficult has also had the effect of bringing of creating more conversation mm-hmm. around our societal issues and our history of racism, for lack of a better word. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit just because I don't want to run out of time to talk about this. Um, and I want to talk about your law firm and the, the growth of your law firm and after your you know initial start with kind of just taking on cases and getting involved back back involved in the community again and as now as an attorney being in that position um, you really over the last year have made some very intentional decisions to grow your law firm yes and and, and have your firm really be a key player in the community. Tell me about that.
1: Um, I don't really exactly know where it started. I know that I have always been a person who um, I always want the best. I always want to be excellent. Um, and so I, I kind of told the story up to the point where I, I sort of hung my shingle out of the spare bedroom in my house and created a home office. Um, but as more people were asking for my help, I knew that that wasn't sustainable. I knew that I, you know, that something was going to have to change even before my dad passed. Um, And so I I just sort of meditated and prayed on that, if I'm to be honest. And and I, I really asked to be led to what I was supposed to do next. And Um, I sort of, a sign sort of started catching my eye that I honestly passed by all the time, but there was a particular office that was for rent. And I don't know why this particular day, but I just called the landlord and I was like, hey, you know, how much is it? And the number kind of scared me, even though like now I laugh at it because he said like something like $700. Um, and, And so he was actually a really great business person and a really great leader in our community. I came to learn, but he heard that I was afraid and he said, okay, how about we graduate We'll start you off at 600 and then in six months you can pay 650 and then another six six months you can pay 700. And to even understand now that that $100 made that much of a difference in my mind is kind of crazy to me. Um, but I did that. And I found myself like running back and forth to court and doing different things. And then nobody was in the office. And I was like, well, what's, you know, people are telling me that people are like leaving notes on the door and telling me they came by and I wasn't there. And so I was like, all right, I got to get somebody to answer the phones. And so I brought somebody in to answer the phones and she had no legal experience and I knew that was not sustainable in any way. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was like, all right, I got to do, do, do something different. And so I just kind of worked out in my mind how I was going to make a little bit more money to, um, add another person. And it, at first it was all about need. I need to do these things because this is how a real law firm works. And I I had, uh, you know, in my in the back of my head, I kept telling myself, Sarah, you've been in excellent law firms. You work for Christopher Montz. you work for Ben Crump, you you like you you work for the <laughs> state attorney's office, you know how files are supposed to be kept, you know what the professional thing is. And so that was sort of my driving point for the first probably year and a half was you know there are things that need to be done that just you have not accomplished, and so do those things. Um and then I hired an associate attorney. And I realized that I had no idea how to manage people. Um, And so that was a very interesting experience for me. And so I, I started delving into all of these things. And I basically, up until probably this time last year, I said to myself, I still have the capacity to teach myself more. And to learn what I need to learn to get to a certain point. And full disclosure, I had met and talked to Davina back in 2017 um, through someone else who had done coaching. Um, and I knew that at some point I was going to need coaching. Um, but I was like, no, I, ha- I didn't feel worthy, honestly, at that point. I was like, somebody's going to come in here and think that I just am uncoachable. I don't know what I'm doing and what is all this mess or whatever. Um, and so by the time I felt sort of, okay, I've sort of hit the wall where I don't know where I, what I don't know. Um, I said, okay, let me, let me go ahead and reach out for help now. And it was a very scary thing, but I knew that what I was doing was working 18 hours a day, six days a week. And, like sleeping through the other day just to make it back to Monday. Um, and in a way, it felt good. It felt satisfying that I'm spending all of my time and energy doing this great work for people and I'm accomplishing great results. And people look at me like I'm this little black girl who doesn't know what she's doing. And then by the time I'm done, they're super impressed and look at look at me go. Um, right. But I also was raised by older people. Um, my grandparents had a huge influence on my upbringing. And so I very much understood what it meant to not be able to do that and I value my long-term security. And so I started thinking very deeply about what would happen if the time came that I could not do that anymore um, and I still needed to. And that made me question how secure I really was. Um, and so I I went ahead and reached out for help, for coaching, um, and Davina, you know the story, but I'll tell our listeners here. Um, Davina just kind of opened my eyes to, in a lot of, a lot of business things that I just did not know. Like I said, I had intended on going to work for someone else. So I had made myself into as excellent of a lawyer as I could, but had learned nothing of business. Um, and there was a whole language that I had to learn around business that I'm still learning around business in a lot of ways um, that was just very different from lawyering. Um, And I have had to sort of rearrange my mindset in a lot of ways about um, what my value is, what the value of my firm is, how those are not the same thing. Um, And also about ultimately what outside of the sort of narcissistic, egotistical, like, what do I want my legacy to be? What do I want to be? Like, what is the service that I really want to provide to people? And how, if I really, if I say what I want out of life is to, in some way to help people, how can I actually do that in the most effective way um, and help the most people possible? And And part of that was Learning that I was not the best person for every job and bringing on a team of people who similarly really are passionate about helping other people and really empathetic when people come to our office with a problem and really skilled at being able to solve that problem and who can help and support me um, in leading this whole race mission, whatever it is that we're trying to do. Um, and I had to, I actually was just talking to a young man about this yesterday. Um, he has been getting in a little trouble. And and what the, the conclusion that I came to in talking to him is that he didn't know what he wanted out of life. He had these sort of broad ideas that he wanted to be good and stable and You know, he wanted to leave a legacy, those things that we all sort of want. Right. Right. Um, But I had to sort of illustrate to myself, for myself, what that thing was in order to build it. It's like I had to create the blueprint in order to build the house. Um, And so over, it's been amazing to see how just building the blueprint has increased my revenue, increased my success, increased my uh, uh, reputation amongst my peers and amongst my clients and amongst the community. Um, And I haven't even started building yet. I just, I'm just writing up the plan so far and it's so awesome to see it coming to fruition. Um, And I will say all the time, the best is yet to come because um, not only are we going to build our team and continue to bring justice to fruition in a lot of ways that um, are sort of Uncommon, from what I've seen in this area, um, but we also plan to physically build in our efforts to build a physical space that our our firm owns, and also um, to to help to build the physical space around us by participating in the redevelopment of a community that has um, that was nearly forgotten.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I want to go back to um, before you and I started working together. And you you started your firm in what year?
1: I filed my articles of in incorporation in 2016. I probably can say I really started practicing like very early in 2017.
0: Yeah, and you hired an associate attorney in 2018, right? I did. <laughs> so I want to talk about that because I think that I think that gives people a good indication of like even though you said you don't know anything about business. There was you made a decision there that a lot of solo attorneys have a lot of fear around and don't make. And I, and I would love for you to share your thinking behind that, because I think it was a smart decision. And even though you probably felt at the time, like, how am I going to pay this person? <laughs> um, <laughs> what made you decide to do that?
1: Um, a couple of things. One was that my caseload had grown to the point where I needed another legal mind to be able to assist with the number of hearings, trials, depositions. You know, the case, I I was carrying 70 cases by myself um, with just me and a legal assistant in the office. Um, And I had gotten to the point where I was starting to feel like, well, one, I had to stop taking cases. I literally would go to the jail to visit my clients and they would say, hey, such and such wants your help. And I'll say, I can't take cases for the next three weeks because I have to close them because I had put a cap on myself so that I wouldn't um, let anything fall through the cracks. Um, And so just, I felt a need for it. And I I don't know if that was intuition or just me not really understanding the role of a paralegal or it it could have been any number of things, but I really felt the need for it um, in terms of the casework. I also felt the need for it in terms of personality. I am a very giving, caring, yes type person. And I'm much less that way than I was in 2017, but um, I'm I'm still giving and caring, but I learned to only say yes, when I predict that it will be beneficial to everyone involved. And I've learned to understand that I am not the best person to solve every issue. And um, I care about people enough to send them to someone who is. At that time, I cared about people in the same way, but, I sacrificed myself, my sleep and a lot of other things to to spend hours and hours and hours undercharging people to research and learn issues that I was only gonna do one time and that someone else was already an expert at. Um, and so I really had to narrow down what it is that I was doing. And one of the things that I do is I work with people who sometimes need an answer without a smile um and i i struggled with that for a long time um because i i like to smile i like to be pleasant um and so i happened to go to law school and be very good friends with an attorney who wanted to come into private practice um who very much had a personality that was caring and compassionate and um all of those those Underlying values and fundamental things that I believed in, but also could look at you and say, no, that's not what's happening. That, 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 (laughs) that's not, that, that's untrue. Or I I understand how you feel, but it it has no bearing on how a judge will rule on this matter. Um, and to be able to, I'm I'm a people person. I'm a very intuitive person and a very empathetic person. And sometimes what I was realizing is that my clients did not understand the severity of the issue or they did not um, feel pressed to make a decision about things that really needed to be decided because they felt very comfortable with me. Um, And she has a way of making people comfortable, but also holding them to a certain standard. And she's taught me how to better do that. Um, And so bringing her on the strategy of it was if, was incorrect. I'll start start there. The strategy of it where if there were two of me, I could do twice as much work. Look at that. Um, That is not what happened. What (laughs) happened was that I spent six months, anywhere, I spent six months just saying, hey, these are best practices. This is, she hadn't done private practice before. She, um, she of course, had gone to law school with me, graduated with me, um, but had gone into recruiting for the law school. Um, And so she had done family law. She had worked in family law firms during law school, but that was somewhat different than criminal law because the rules are very relaxed in family law in terms of evidentiary rules and procedural rules. And I. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss, I kick butt (laughs) when it comes to (laughs) procedure and, and and those types of rules, I was the attorney who. Like it's very relaxed here. Everybody like calls each other by their first names and you know, they kind of spout off their understanding of the rule off the back of their head sometimes. And not to say there's not a good lawyer in here. I don't want to put down any other attorneys, but what I found was I would come into court and I've read like the, the policy behind the rule and the and the letter of the law and came and did all of my research with all of these 12 cases for my hearing and my opposing counsel would send me one case or two cases or no cases. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And I would come in and I would just like beast them on procedure and say, you can't do what you want to do because this whole foundational principle you totally didn't account for. And this is why I'm right. And the judge would go, hmm, I agree with Miss Jones. <laughs> uh, and so it, there was a different level of specificity that I brought that I thought that if I could just double this thing, then you know, we would double everything. Up. And that was, of course, untrue. I needed a support staff. I needed a lot of other things. But what it did was it freed me up to be able to do those other things. So as I trained her to do things the way that we do things and also learn to back off, like, there was a motion she sent me one day, very early on, probably about six months in, and, and she's well-trained. I, I would have hired her if she wasn't. And I was looking at the motion and I caught myself like changing every paragraph. And then I I was like, okay, Sarah, what are you changing? And it was style stuff. It was stuff that was my emotion better in my estimation, probably, Um, maybe not objectively. Um, Did it ultimately matter as to the outcome of the client? No. Yeah, Um, yeah. that's
0: key. That that whole letting go of control of details so you can, you know, is it sufficient is the question. Is this sufficient to get the job done that we want to get
1: done? And and, and actually, once I took myself out of it and what I would have done, it was good. It wasn't even just that it was sufficient. It was good. It was just much different than the way I would have done it. And so at that point, like I said, we were probably about six months in. And then, okay, I, I was like, okay, Sarah, be less of a trainer and more of a supervisor now spend less time looking at every single thing she does and do more audits. And, you know, if it's a contested hearing, go back and make sure you read the motion a week before in case we need to amend or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And there was times where we needed to amend, right? There was times where I was like, oh, but ultimately (laughs) um, everything was fine. Like, And it turned out to be really good. And it helped me To not have to run back and forth 20 minutes each way to court and then stand there in line because we don't have sign up sheets in most courtrooms here. Mm -hmm. So even if we get there, you know, you have to get there early to get a good spot in line. And then sometimes the judge judge is late. So you stand there for two hours. And while she's standing in line for two hours, I can do strategic strategic planning.
0: right. Um, right.
1: figure out how we're going to make the money to hire a paralegal that we need so desperately so that we're both not working 18 hour days. Um, and we increased the caseload and we were able to take more clients, which allowed us to have to to hire. Well, to, we, we actually promoted our legal assistant to a paralegal. Um, and so she prior to being our legal assistant did not have law firm experience, but she learned so well that it made much more sense to. Uh, promote her and bring in someone at a lower level than it did to hire someone who would have to relearn all of our systems. Um, And so full disclosure, I paid myself very little at the time. Um, When I first brought her on, I I had the luxury of being able to do that because I'm married and we have a two income household Um, and I intentionally kept my um, overhead very low. And so I, I... have always been a person to value my security. And so I made sure that there were certain economic things in place as to not bankrupt the business or hire a friend and then she not be able to pay her bills because that is obviously, you know, when you're hiring somebody you care about, it makes it that much more urgent. Um, but I I do well um, when I have to do something. <laughs> and so I, I knew that I would be able to achieve it. I just had to prepare myself for it. Um, And since then, we've hired um, several other people. We brought on different contractors. Um, We're actually in a sort of stage of growth now, where we're bringing on contractors to do work that we don't necessarily have enough work for the full time people yet. But we're working on growing those areas to bring in more revenue and really learning. A lot of stuff about business that I would not have had the opportunity to learn if I was working on every case every day. Um, And so we've set up a sort of system where I do file reviews and I I make sure that I'm aware of the strategic mission and plan for every file. I go and see our clients. Our clients have access to me, but there are points before that that I'm not personally responsible for. Somebody else is accountable to me and I make sure it gets done. Um, but the, the work is getting done outside of the 24 hours I have in, in each day.
0: Right. Right. And you have, uh, we're going to need to end in just a minute, but I want to uh, just also mention that you now have recently hired another attorney. So now there are three of you, you have hired a client care specialist yes. who has turned out to be phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and you've implemented a lot of, systems in your business and using some some technology and some outside vendors a whole lot of shifts and changes in your business just in the last eight months Mm -hmm. um and it's all really paying off for you um, and setting you up for a good good future Mm -hmm. um what has that felt like for you i know there's been some you can't have growth without discomfort, right? right. So so what has that felt like you for you and and how do you think you've changed uh just from a year ago to now?
1: <laughs> oh, I've changed tremendously. It's it's interesting to have to introduce myself to myself all over again. Um, <laughs> but I I know that I have much more freedom now. Um I used to believe that what what I was doing was the only way I could do it. I have to do this. I have to do this. Um, and I, I sort of removed that barrier from my own mind, you know, in speaking to you and really talking to other law firm owners and realizing that, you know, my business is not going to fail if I do something different. Um, I, I think I sort of saw it as being so fragile. Um yeah. prior you know or probably this time last year i i I viewed it as being so breakable um and I did not have confidence in the machine that I had built um mm-hmm. and so I started to ask myself why that was, and some of it was false, right some of it was was junk that was that I needed to unlearn, and some of it was there are things that need to be improved, and I literally just what is the first time a client hears from me? How do I make that better? What is the first time I actually interact with them? How do I make that better? What is their experience like during the intake process? What is their experience like through the whole process of working with me and how do I really make that the best experience possible for them? And so I knew that excellence was key. I I don't do anything outside of excellence. And so I knew that that was something that was really, really important for me. I also understood that um, I just couldn't do it by myself, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I had to develop my mind. Um, At one point, you advised that I do the Clifton Strengths uh, personality test, the personality Mm -hmm. profile. Mm -hmm. And I really had to learn what my strengths were um, and be okay with the fact that I am not strong at every single thing. Um, And if I bring in people who are strong at those things, those things will get done better for one. And I will have more time to increase my strengths in the area where I'm both strong and weak. Um, right. And so really getting out of my own way and and unlearning some of those untrue things that I had learned in my past um, and unpacking why I didn't feel worthy or competent or why I felt this thing was so fragile or breakable and what would actually happen if I made this change. And so that that's something I played out over and over in my mind. Outside of my fear, what what will actually happen if I make this change? And what I have found is a lot of my answers is I'll miss five calls before I realize it. if I, If five calls that I miss is going to bankrupt my business, I've already done something wrong. You know, or, you know, if I bring on someone and I have them started and they work for eight hours and I realize, oh, my gosh, this person is not the person for me the worst that can happen is an uncomfortable conversation, but that's also something I can prevent by doing a much better right. job hiring. So looking right. at what I want back to sort of visualizing what would actually happen and, and playing it out in my mind and doing the mental and emotional work to really formulate what I wanted my business to be. And then taking the action step of doing the thing.
0: Uh, well, Sarah there, uh, we're, we're going to need to end. Cause I know you and I both have uh, appointments in a few minutes, but yeah, um, I I could probably talk, we need to probably do a part two for this because (laughs) I'd love to delve into all, you've made so many changes in the last year. And I know a lot of people would probably love to hear all about your marketing changes that you've done, as well as delving more into how you've grown your team and set up your systems because you've put in a tremendous amount of work into systems. Um, But I felt that the conversation, you know, the first part of this conversation was so important for us to have because I want people to understand the great work that you're doing there um, for Florida and for the country and for your community. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Can you uh, tell us how we can connect with you, where we can find out more information about Sarah Jones Law and uh, reach out to you if we want to on social?
1: Sure. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Sarah Jones. Um, We're also Sarah Jones Law, P-A for the firm, Um, Our website is joneslawjustice.com, and there's a uh, contact us section on our website. You can feel free to reach out to me, or if you want to reach out personally, my email is Sarah, S-A-R-A, at joneslawjustice.com. Thank you. Thank you so much, and of course, you know, I always love talking with you, and I'm really glad you
0: came on my podcast today, so thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in The League in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, Go now to slash league. That's slash league. League is spelled L E A G U E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.